Listeners, are you aware of the concept of the Grey Goo? This futuristic dystopian concept of nanotechnology gaining sentience, consuming the ecosystem around it, perpetually and exponentially self-replicating and turning all of reality into a bland, tasteless Grey Goo. Well, we are currently at the brink of something like that occurring, not materially, not physically, but rather culturally. And with me today is Morgan Daimler yet again, the independent expert in Irish fairy folklore. But today we talk about something very, very unexpected and unique for Morgan. The topic today is AI writing. How we are seeing a lot of authors utilize AI to write about these folkloric subjects, and how eventually this process of AI writing may actually change the folklore we know of. But this discussion opened up doors to so many other topics. We also talk about historical folkloric research in general, how valid original source material really is and conveying traditional beliefs of bygone days, how we have been reducing folklore into a grey goo for centuries now, not just today with the advent of AI, and even how these modern bastardizations, which have nothing to do with the traditional beliefs, actually seep into the real world via encounters with paranormal phenomena. Okay, Morgan, so welcome back to my show. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. <laughs> I have yet not put out the first episode you were on, and you are now appearing for a second time, and we're planning a third appearance as well. Yeah, there's just so many good things to talk about. Yes, and uh, as we were talking about uh, before recording, like uh, maybe my show provides you a different platform or perspective to talk about these topics. Essentially, my show is about how we use these beliefs. And today's topic is a one that I think maybe people would not ask you very often, but I was very perplexed when I heard you, or rather saw you tweet about it. So uh, we're talking today about AI writing. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I mean, it is sort of a, a new topic to be considering. It hasn't been around for a really long time. So I don't think a lot of people have stopped and considered the wider impact of it. Yes. And I do realize, I heard you on a, a few podcasts say that spite is a driving force for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking I'm providing you a platform where you can just rant on how much you hate AI writing and its implications. And it's not just, you know, hate, like from the perspective of, oh, I'm an author and these people are, you know, uh, doing nothing and selling books that are crappy, but just the implications of how this may influence folklore, do a retcon of the folklore, which I find very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I probably it is bordering on, on hatred at this point, but... Um, <laughs> It's, I don't. I prefer to say I don't hate AI as a concept. I think that there, it's a tool that can have its uses. I think that part of the problem we're in at the moment is that it's so new and it's so unknown that we really have no um, structure mm -hmm. for its use. Um, and so that's why we're seeing issues with like, you know, the artists and the copyrighted material and books that are coming out that are being AI written. And, you know, the AI is, is very, very good, but it doesn't 
know how to cite sources properly. It's not always truthful. Um, you know, it'll, it'll put out information that's wrong with a citation that's wrong. And I think those are all things that we kind of have to figure out before we really get to the value of it. So essentially, it's no better than the standard author. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's there's definitely some questionable material out there for sure. Yes, yes. Okay, so I wanted to ask you, like, uh, how long has this been going on? When did you first start noticing people using AI to write whole books? So the AI writing, I've been aware of it for a little while. The first AI written novel, I believe, came out two years ago, um, something in that range. So it, it's been around a little under the radar that, you know, not as many people are aware that it's there. I had noticed with some pagan focused books that had come out uh, late last year, November, December, that they seemed to be AI written. Of course, you know, there's also the issue with content farming, which is um, sort of like a, a very low level kind of ghostwriting that happens. But you can usually tell when it's AI, because at least at this point, the material doesn't have a lot of flow. It's very disjointed and very contradictory. Um, so, you know, when you're dealing with something that's, say, talking about like Norse mythology, which can be contradictory by nature, but it's having these passages where in the same paragraph, it's saying, you know, Freya's parents were Odin and whoever, uh, which Odin's not her father. And then it's saying that, you know, her parents were no, actually these two giants, which is also not true. And then it's saying that her parents were herself, which just <laughs> makes no sense, you know, even for Norse mythology. <laughs> Even in mythology, there are various different stories and interpretations. Like I talked about Medusa a few times on my show, and there are various Greek, but also various Roman interpretations of the Medusa story. And yep. if an AI cannot, you know, recognize the context of where all this is coming from, and that it's just variations of the same story from different cultural contexts, it uses all of it as truth and fact. Yeah. And as we were talking about a little before we started recording, AI can't differentiate between nonfiction and fiction. So um, again, at least at this point, the algorithm doesn't seem to be able to. So I think we also then see problems with material that's being taken from fiction and just sort of put into the nonfiction. Um, again, the, the particular examples that I had seen, which, which seemed to me to be pretty clearly AI written. And the reason that that becomes an issue is that then people read that book who don't know anything about the mythology or the stories or the source material and can't spot that these are things that are, are pretty flagrantly um, just kind of nonsense, you know, and yes, you can have bad books written by humans, but usually even bad books by humans have a certain amount of mm -hmm. uh, accuracy to them, or it's kind of easier to tell that this is the person's own opinions that they're sort of sharing. And the AI works, I think, if you're not really familiar with the material, and basically familiar with the material, uh, it's really easy not to, to see what it is. And then of course, you're going to believe it and then move forward with it, which I think is where my real concern comes in, because then then it's compounding problems, and then people are using that book as a reference moving forward, or, you know, uh, I actually been talking about a friend of mine with a friend of mine about what's going to happen when AI books start citing and, you know, drawing from other AI written books. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, and you're it's just going to get like degrees of stranger. I'm also wondering like what it must be to be an AI if you are uh, using all the fiction and nonfiction in the world and thinking that that's all real. <laughs> Yeah. So 
you know, it's an existential horror just living as an AI, <laughs> thinking that all fiction that was ever written is a part of reality. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I, I think the problem here where, where you say there is a mixture of fiction and nonfiction in AI writing and then people can go on believing it, I think maybe the bigger problem there is that the nonfiction that is incorporated into this may be perceived as fiction then. Yeah, I mean, it's there's definitely multiple aspects, I think, to where this becomes a problem. Um, That's definitely one of them. Also, the idea that, you know, people who don't know better, like I said, and then move forward acting like, you know, well, this this is genuine. Um, And then the other problem with the AI material is, um, you know, for example, I I can write fairly quickly. Um, I I probably publish three to four books a year, uh, which is is considerably higher than the average. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm definitely a human, for the record. I am not artificial intelligence. But when you look at the AI, they can put out so many books. It's just the the sheer amount of material. You know, human authors can't really compete with that level of productivity, which is another way to spot when it's AI. You know, if it's an author on Amazon that's been there for two or three years, but has like 250 books that mm-hmm. they've published, that is definitely not one human being writing those books and putting them out. You know, it's just, it's not possible to write at that kind of quantity. Unless you're Walter Gibson. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you're Stephen King and you're writing, you know, 10,000 words a day, you know, even he would probably take a little while (laughs) to get that many books out for sure. There are definitely humans that can write very quickly on specific topics, but not the way that AI can do it. Yes, yes. And of course, it's only going to get better and and more, not accurate necessarily in the sense of factually, but more able to pass as human writing. So in regards to the fairy lore, have you seen any AI books that present themselves as nonfiction or is it mostly fiction? Um, So far at this point, um, I've seen a good amount of fiction and I I have seen it kind of moving into the the pagan book sphere. Um, So I have seen some around Irish and more generally Celtic kind of material which will touch on or mention fairies. Um, I haven't so far seen one exclusively about fairies. Um, I, I would almost want to just to see what that would even look like because the material that we have on fairies across the folklore is so ridiculously convoluted and <laughs> complex and contradictory. I don't know what an AI would make of it, quite frankly. <laughs> I told you, I think in the last episode we did that fairy lore is like X-Men comics, especially in the 90s, so convoluted and complicated yep, and full of yep. plot holes. Yeah, well, and it's it, it gets so regionally specific and, um, you know, trying to write about it, uh, even as someone who's been studying it for a long time, can be really difficult uh, without really oversimplifying it. And, you know, as far as I understand it, the way the AI writing works at this point is you give it a prompt and then it goes through all of the material it has access to, which, um, you know, is, is a considerable amount. And if you do that for all the fairy material, I just, I, I don't know how much of a dumpster fire you would get, but it would definitely be really entertaining. Yeah, but, but I think you would be the one who would see just how much of a dumpster fire it is because you actually know the, you know, regional differences. Let's say the AI does a book about fairies, but mixes up these regional elements together. So you would be able to differentiate, no, this part part of the book is for this region and has nothing to do with this other, you know, part of the book. What I'm getting at is we we have been doing this even without AI for, for centuries. We have been trying to dilute fairy lore into one all-encompassing thing without uh, emphasizing the regional context. 
Yeah, with a stunning lack of success so far. Although I will say that the Victorian era probably had the most success, the broadest success with kind of homogenizing fairies and um, also radically rewriting them. Speaking of retcon, like mm-hmm. the, the modern idea of what fairies are, the, the little tiny winged, helpful children, garden spirit kind of fairy, which is what most people really will think of, particularly in the US, if you mention fairies. And that's wholly an invention of the Victorian era. Um, it's not something that really existed before that. So, you know, we, we definitely are constantly changing our views and our understanding of, of who and what fairies are. Usually, though, not so much eliminating other options and stories and and older versions as just adding more to the mix. Oh, so we are essentially widening the scope of what a fairy is. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how I would I would view it. You know, if if you go back far enough, I mean, obviously we only have so much material to go back and look at what we have in writing. Um, but if you go back, you know, a thousand years, twelve hundred years, you can kind of see that the the way that these beings were understood was it was a broad term that they would use, but the concept was fairly specific and not homogenous in the sense we have now. But you know, there was a continuity to it, I guess we'll say. Mm-hmm. And then it's like as time went on and as different cultures interact as they do and influence each other, things would just get more and more complicated. And then, you know, you go from having sort of this not necessarily simple, but uh, straightforward or concept of say like in, in uh, England, Alpha would have been the, the old Anglo-Saxon kind of understanding of these beings. And then you get the French influence coming in with the Normans and then kind of get the idea of, of fairies using that word, but also the concept of it changes a little bit, but the Alpha, the elves are still around. So now you have two and it just sort of gets, gets more and more layers and more and more complicated as time goes on. Uh, and then you hit, you know, the modern era, the modern day, there's just so much now, so much of it. Yeah, I think it's also a result of, let's say, Christianization and uh, imperialism because they were using all of these uh, regional folklores and beliefs and trying to incorporate them in the contemporary belief system, trying to unify all of these regions together under one <laughs> faith or religion. Yep. So the, sure. the, the more time progressed, the more the dominating force of the contemporary time was trying to just retcon the old beliefs and incorporate them into the new. Yeah, yeah. And that that actually um, has had a huge impact on fairy beliefs, which I think a lot of people don't even appreciate because Christianity coming in, you kind of have this religion and this concept that doesn't have any room for these otherworldly beings. And of course, the people aren't going to just stop believing in them because these are very important beliefs that communities have so they kind of do have to get sort of retconned in <laughs> like where mm-hmm. do you fit them into this cosmology um, that makes it make sense but also keeps it in a christian context and so that's what we kind of see happening in this idea starting that you know maybe fairies are fallen angels or maybe they're demons that aren't really that bad you know like the, the kind of middle ground but you see, we have not stopped doing this. Like even now, we have uh, Disney uh, buying back the rights to you know X Men, and now they need to find a way to incorporate mutants and X Men into the MCU and stuff like that. Well, the, the new Deadpool movie where they're bringing back Wolverine, mm-hmm. like. 
You got to find a way to make that make sense. Okay, so I want to ask you this, like when we're talking about original source material, like how accurate is it to the beliefs of the people? Because I imagine anything that was written like 1200 years ago was not written by a commoner who was, you know, giving a fairy tithe of his harvest so his family would not, you know, die uh, from... (laughs) famine or something. So these pe- these were not the people writing history, only, you know, winners are the ones writing history and filtering through their view of the world. So how accurate are the original source materials possibly to the actual beliefs? And that is sort of the the ultimate question, because obviously there's no way for us to know for sure. But you're definitely 100% correct that for the vast majority of the time, it's not the people who have the beliefs necessarily who are writing them down. It's sort of that educated, scholarly class of person who might not even be from that community or um, even from that country in, in a lot of cases. Um, and a lot of times, particularly with the older material, it's being written down by like Christian scribes. So then you have that added layer of, you know, how much is that um, Christian filter affecting what they're writing? And, you know, it, it sort of leaves us with this ultimate question of how much stock do we put in what we do have? Um, and of course, there are people who will argue that we just shouldn't take any of it as having any real value, that we should look at all of it as kind of foreign influence, uh, which then, of course, leaves us with nothing. And then, you know, other people, and I'm sort of in this this camp, that we're definitely getting some of the belief. They're not coming directly from the people. They're probably distorted to some degree, but it was at least an attempt to kind of record them. So, you know, where the actual truth is in that, it's hard to say. But even if we get into like more recent history, you know, with the Victorian era, which is when folklorists got particularly interested in recording beliefs around fairies, um, what they called the fairy faith. But again, these were not people who had these beliefs. These weren't people who were, you know, generally part of these communities. These were, you know, sort of these university kind of people or, uh, you know, very highly educated people coming into these communities and recording beliefs. And we know with the Victorians, at least, we know that they did not record things accurately (laughs) a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. And especially if there were, you know, more spicy (laughs) things incorporated in the story. They did have a problem with the spicy, for sure. Mm -hmm. And they also like if they thought a story needed something else or wasn't dramatic enough or whatever, they did not hesitate to rewrite things and, you know, adjust material that they thought would sound better, (laughs) you know, the way they wanted to tell the story. So we have all of this recorded folklore from the late 1880s, 1890s into the early 1900s that is at least half fiction, you know, that's half the author's stories and opinions, as opposed to them actually going into these communities and just recording literally what people were saying. Um, And that's that's definitely had some profound effects. One of the examples I like to give people is uh, William Butler Yeats. I love his poetry. I will say up front. But a lot of the material he recorded and sort of put forward as like, this is Irish folklore is is really just his own material. Um, and he has a whole thing about the Lananshi fairy lovers, and he makes them very vampiric and very much, you know, the poet's dark muse and yes. all of this. Yes. Um, I think we were talking about that on the other episode too. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> yep. Uh, but that's, we don't find that in the actual Irish material because I have dug into that one specifically in, in the older, the Irish language material in particular, because Yeats didn't speak Irish. It's a completely different idea. But the Yeats version has become sort of the popular version, and that's the one everyone thinks of now, even though he basically created it, you know, in 1888 or whatever it was. But if you did not have these older sources, which show you that, 
you know, the older beliefs do not reflect Yeats's version of the Lian and Shi, or let's say somebody burned all of these sources during Christianization, then we would only have the Yeats version and stick with that. That's a problem. Yeah, yeah it's, and it definitely, I think, makes us have to kind of sit and wonder um, how much of what we do have is one particular author's opinions or, you know, imagination versus what people were actually believing at that point in time. Getting back to your original question that uh, started all of this, and it's it's difficult. Sometimes we can trace things back. Um, that's one of the things I've done repeatedly on social media. When I see stuff that I'm not familiar with, I'll kind of go back and kind and trace the concept and figure out, you know, when did this actually get started, and you know, who put it out there. But there's a lot of things that get spread around or are taken just at face value that this is like an old legitimate belief, you know, that started in like 2008 or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, I have kind of grown to believe this, like even in the para weird community where I'm in, where we constantly talk about these cases of UFOs and aliens and cryptids and whatnot. And we're always reading uh, accounts of witnesses and then saying, oh, this witness saw this. It's more like this witness is saying that they saw this. We are reading perceptions. We are not reading truth. So even like when you're looking at these original sources of a fairy belief, fairy lore, you are actually studying perceptions of beliefs and not necessarily the beliefs. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating uh, when you think about it. And I always sort of try to take into account a lot of the studies that they've done about eyewitness material. Um, and, you know, they found repeatedly that eyewitnesses tend to be really inaccurate. <laughs> You know, most most humans just do not remember things the way they actually happen. It's not how the human brain works. So I, I do think that people genuinely have experiences, you know, whether it's it's the paranormal or, or supernatural or, you know, whatever term we want to use for it. But you definitely have to consider that whatever and however strongly they believe something did happen, and this applies to myself as well, it's never going to be 100% what actually, like if there was a camera mm-hmm. that could record these things, what you would see on the camera would not be identical to what the per- the story the person would tell. Oh, it's even questionable if the camera would capture anything because like I heard from magic practitioners, if you do a ritual or, you know, a spell or something and you record that with a camera and you look at the video after <laughs> that you're going to look at yourself as doing something silly because it does not capture the magic of the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, on a, a related note, if you do you know, believe in all of this stuff, a lot of this sort of phenomena is uh, reputed to or known to interfere with electronics. <laughs> well, we, we were lucky today. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but unfortunately, last time we we had like uh, techno fairies. I'm burning incense and candles and offering milk and whatever over here. So hopefully, <laughs> the fairies decide to let this work okay. <laughs> okay, wh- when we're talking now about techno fairies, so obviously that was not a thing 1,200 years ago. So I asked you before we were recording, like, do the fairies or the phenomenon or whatever adapt to the current contemporary uh, perception or belief in them? I mean, this is going to be one of those things that you're going to get different opinions on. So I'm just going to say that up front. But in my opinion, yes. And I think we do have evidence of that. Um, There was 
an account in England, and I believe it was 1979, some school children uh, were out kind of in this park uh, right at sunset, sort of when they weren't supposed to really still be there. And um, multiple, uh, I believe there was like half a dozen of them, and they were chased out of the park, according to them, by what they described as little gnomes in cars. Yes, so that's a very famous case. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I know the park starts with a W and I cannot remember the actual name. There was also some kind of gnome pilot that was uh, piloting a miniature plane. And that, I mean, however you want to take that account, it at least indicates the idea of fairies or gnomes in this case, you know, using human technology. Um, there was an account from the early 20th century in Wales. Um, I should back this up slightly and say there's a widespread motif in fairy belief called the borrowed midwife, where um, the idea is that the fairies don't have babies very often. So when they have one, they have to find a human midwife because they don't, they just don't have that. Um, and this is something we find across all like Western European fairy belief as long as we've had written accounts of it. So it's a big thing. Um, but there's an account from Wales in the, the early 20th century of um, a midwife who was, you know, called to, to go out to see this woman and was taken on a bus, like a city bus, out to this field. Um, and it turned out the woman was a pixie. And, you know, the man was a pixie and he'd ridden the bus out to get the midwife and then took her back on the bus. And so that's another kind of indication of that sort of blending of fairy belief with with modern human technology mm -hmm. yeah he did not have his own car like the gnomes though <laughs> I, I find that very interesting because it goes into this co-creation territory that the phenomenon is co-created with us like when we're talking about fairy like whatever dimension they're from it looks like that is something that is very intricately linked to our own domain or dimension or world or whatever you want to call it so mm -hmm. it's like uh, our reality is a sort of baseline to what will be reflected in their reality yep and that that raises a lot of really interesting questions i think yeah we definitely have a lot of material that sort of reflects this idea that they are intrinsically connected to us but also dependent on us in certain ways um you know speaking of the technology even if you go back a couple hundred years when hand mills first became a thing where people could grind their own wheat at home and didn't have to take it to the, the big town mill we have all sorts of stories about fairies borrowing those and or stealing them but borrowing them um showing up and asking you know for the loan of the hand mill because it was a new technology at that time and it was sort of this idea that of course the fairies wouldn't have that but they would want to use it yeah but but i perceive that as more of they want the sacrifice they want you to forfeit something that is very important to you well that too for sure <laughs> That, that's definitely um, very on brand for them. But it's this idea that like when humans get a new technology, it takes the fairies a little while to either get it for themselves or kind of figure it out. You know, like we don't see the accounts of them with the cars until the 1970s. Um, and obviously, you know, cars had been around at that point for, you know, 60, 70 years. I'm not going to remember when the first car was. Yeah, it would be very interesting, like in these instances where fairies are seen with vehicles, if the model of the vehicle is like considered retro for the time. <laughs> I would be really fascinated to know because that is something we find in a lot of the accounts with clothing, that what they're wearing is described as being a, a generation or two out of date. Mm -hmm. This is something we see a lot in Men in Black accounts. And there are whole theories that the Men in Black are 
cafe. I've had several people ask me now about the Black Eyed Children, if that would be considered a fae. And, you know, the same thing with those stories, the ones that I've read anyway, the accounts of the Black Eyed Children is the children are often described in clothes that seem out of place or old fashioned. So Yes. Now, I wanted to go back to these like original sources or historical uh, sources that you use in your uh, research. I want to ask you, like the way people write about fairies in them, is it always uh, retrospective? Like, is it always, oh, this is something that was believed in the past? That is such a great question because it's, it's a little bit of both. There has been a very strong trend for at least 300 years of people, particularly more educated people, writing about fairies, but in the tone of people in the past believed this, but nobody believes this today. I actually have to correct myself. That's going on 600 years because Chaucer was one of the first ones to do that. Mm -hmm. The whole like people in my grandparents' day believed in this, but you know, nobody believes in this today. Um, So it's sort of a running joke with people in folklore who study fairies that the fairies are sort of always leaving, but never gone. Yes. Everyone always says like, oh, you know, nobody believes in this anymore, but yet somehow the beliefs are very persistent. Yeah, and in our last episode, I was kind of insinuating that fairies may be a personification of nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, it's there's whenever it comes to like people asking what are fairies or what could they represent, I think there's so many possibilities that probably all of them are true, um, one way or another, just because it's it's not a subject that's really easy to to have a simple explanation for. So I'm sure there's an aspect of it that comes down to that, comes down to people remembering, you know, things they'd heard when they were children or, you know, stories they were told and kind of passing that on. Yes, yes. Now, these old uh, sources, what you say, original source material, are they like poetry stories or were they like ethnographic studies? Oh, I wish they had ethnographic studies back then that would be awesome um a lot of it is christian scribes who were were recording stories what we might term myths at this point or legends um so like the oldish irish language account on extra kanla is um dated to the ninth century in writing and i believe they based on the language think as an oral story it probably goes back at least two or three hundred years before that the oldest irish story about fairies in it it's you know the person's recording the story that would have been kind of well known in the area Um, people would have been familiar with it about a fairy woman who shows up and um, convinces the son of a king to to go with her back to her world to the the world of the fairies and it wasn't recorded necessarily in the tone of of someone who's like well i believe this really happened or these people really exist it was more recorded in that tone of like this is a story that everyone knows that people are very familiar with Mm -hmm. and uh, what was being recorded like are these stories set like centuries before they were written some of them are a little vague um particularly irish there's a lot of these pseudo historical stories um with kings that never actually existed but you know there's a whole segment of stories that are based on multiple generations of these kings that as far as we've been able to prove anyway didn't actually exist in history mm-hmm. so there's definitely an aspect of it that is is that it's almost a, a history but not always very specific time period history i'm asking because like in my culture we had uh, the most influential ethnographer in the 19th century vuk karadzic yes he has the same name as me 
It's a good name. Yes. So he he was uh, documenting these uh, beliefs and stories from various different villages, you know, around Serbia. But um, he was documenting, let's say, fairy stories from the 14th century, but documenting them in the 19th century. And there is this story that I am very fond of about the walled woman when the Rozafa castle was being built. Now, there are various different versions of the story. The Serbian version has specific names of specific kings that were, you know, real historical figures in the 1300s. But then the Albanians have their own version of the story with their own names. Yep. (laughs) So I'm very interested just how maybe when we're talking about, let's say, ethnographers writing down these uh, traditional beliefs of people, but people telling them about stories from centuries past. Yeah. uh, How accurate they are to the history. And like, is there even a way for us to ever know the history? And when we talk about history, are we just talking about a folklore that we're creating to to just accept as a status quo of what history was? Oh, I think that's such a brilliant way to put it. I mean, kind of like we, we had said right before we started recording, you know, history or folklore is always going to be told by the people who actually wrote it down. And it's going to be their version um, and their thoughts, much like the Victorian folklorists who, you know, it's almost impossible to go back through that material and pick out the stuff that they made up. Um, We can kind of guess with some of it if they're the only person who ever said it or recorded it. But in a lot of cases, you know, you're, you're dealing with someone who they were the only one who wrote about that area or that culture or whatever. And it's very hard to know you know how accurate what they're writing is um i do think when we're talking about history in a more general sense that there's certain things we can corroborate with say archaeology or mm-hmm. you know if, if a neighboring culture also wrote about the same event from their perspective we can be sure okay that event did happen yes as a, as is this event about the rosafa castle like we have our version the albanians have theirs but the historical figures are completely different even though it's the same thing that happened and yeah. it actually happened there is an actual castle yeah yeah oh, I, I believe it um i do think that every generation that a story gets passed down something changes at least a little bit and i think the longer stuff is being passed down mm-hmm. um even in cultures that are you know very oral based and very focused on preserving their traditional stories um it's just the nature of stories storytellers like to add little details or to focus more on one part of a story than another and it's it's sort of unavoidable i think that things evolve and change and you know we're talking about the irish myths a lot of them because they were recorded by christian scribes when they're trying to date things they date things based on the bible which makes it basically impossible <laughs> to actually put it in a real historical context because they're they're talking about you know in the 50 years after the, f- the great flood with noah is kind of when they're timing things and, and that gets very complicated yes now i'm gonna ask you a weird question that my buddy todd purse loves to ponder over so if we are now changing the folklore let's say now we perceive fairies to be these little things with wings if we go back into the past with a time machine <laughs> are we going to encounter fairies with wings is our belief current of what the past is actually changing the past? So that is a fascinating question. Um, I don't think unless we can invent a time machine, we would ever know for sure. Although now I would really love to try it. (laughs) I will say, at least with the subject of fairies, that there seems to be uh, like a, a 
50 to 100 year lag time for when stuff that's that's getting popular in fiction and popular culture starts to show up in anecdotal accounts. So like the idea with Fairies with Wings that started uh, most likely in the theater and then in artwork in the mid 1800s. Um, I believe the first 1830s might be the earliest. And then in the end of the 19th century, getting into the beginning of the 20th is when we start to see fiction. James Barry's Peter Pan would be a notable example of the little fairies with wings. But we actually don't start finding anecdotal accounts recorded until the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and now, of course, it, they're pretty common. Like you'll run into a lot of people who you know, will say they've had a fairy experience and will describe it as being small and having wings and flying and all that. Um, I mean, it's enough at this point that you get a lot of people posting photos of bugs saying, you know, I caught this fairy on camera because it's just so ingrained now. And that idea that that's what they look like and they have the wings and they're little and all that. But there's there's definitely this sort of perceptible lag for when it, it kind of hits pop culture and fiction and artwork versus when we start seeing people having those experiences. So I would actually be really curious if we had a time machine. <laughs> we can, now we have to invent one. So I'm, I'm pondering now, like while while you're talking about this, about the relationship between uh, pop culture and then these anecdotal experiences and accounts. Let's say how the pop culture is our output, but then the anecdotal accounts are a form of our input. Um, how? Oh man, sorry, <laughs> my brain is twisted now. Oh man. I forgot what it was. That's yeah, a fascinating topic. And um, I've actually written a little bit and I've done a couple of university presentations for conferences talking about the way that fiction is impacting belief. Anecdotal accounts get a little more complicated because uh, I, I don't know that I would 100% trust everyone on social media sharing certain things because you do get people who just, you know, make stuff up as opposed to someone yeah. who is, you know, voluntarily recording something for like posterity. Yeah, but, but what I was going to say is how the outputs or rather our anecdotal accounts are kind of like our manifestation of the pop culture. So the pop culture influences our perception of the phenomenon, but then we manifest the phenomenon in the form of the pop cultural icons and symbols. Well, and I mean, I think that's definitely a really legitimate question. And, you know, I can't remember if we talked about this the other episode or not, but there's sort of an ongoing debate between the, the ufology community and the, the fairy folklore community about whether aliens and alien abduction experiences are actually aliens or whether they're fairies because mm -hmm. the, the modus operandi is pretty much identical. If you look at the folklore with fairies, you have the same, you know, missing time, um, distorted perceptions. You know, it's I, I could, it's a big list. I don't want to get totally off track with that. But <laughs> um, pretty much all the things that we would consider hallmarks of like an alien abduction or alien experience are the same as what we would consider with fairies. You just, depending on whether you call them aliens or call them fairies and whether it's in a sort of um, technological context or not in the case of fairies. Yes. Is it that our perception decides what label we put on the experience? Um, are they actually just two completely different types of experiences that are just very similar? Are we perceiving what we expect or are we shaping the experience through those expectations, if that makes sense? Mm -hmm. And I, I want to say like the pop culture is just like a giant pool of these ideas and concepts. Mm -hmm. But what people experience seems to be a window towards what is sticking 
Like not all of these ideas and concepts in pop culture are going to permanently stick yeah. and uh, completely Hopefully. change, you know, the folklore. Yeah. And I think that's always been the case that, you know, there's always sort of a natural filtering process that happens. It's just, I think social media, because it gets material out to a really wide audience, does complicate the picture a little bit because things spread much more quickly, which is also why modern fiction has such a strong impact because, you know, it's not like it used to be a hundred years ago, there's there's a lot out there on the market and it's it's fairly easy to access for a lot of people. Um, and then that kind of changes the direction people go in with their beliefs um, and what they believe about these beings. So essentially capitalism is a huge force that is influencing the shaping of folklore. <laughs> I would say so, in my opinion, um, which I think circles us back around to the whole AI situation, because that's definitely very capitalism driven. And getting into the question of how is AI going to affect folklore when you have material that's being put out there without any human context to it, but is, is being kind of widespread. But, but also the amount of material, because let's say in 200 years, if somebody wants to look back at, let's say, books about fairies, the more books you have pumped out via AI about fairies, the more likely is that an AI book will, you know, stand the test of time. Yep. And the more likely it is that it'll be something people come to believe. It'll it'll become a folk belief um, just because it's so widespread. And a lot of times that can be a very strong factor. And, you know, again, that idea of then you start getting AI books that are drawing from other AI sources to create this sort of novel approach or novel view, this new view of fairies and what they are and just combining this internet blend of you know, fact and fiction and folklore and opinion and everything that you can find online. Um, and mm -hmm. then it's, it's going to create something, I think, that is going to be very different. Are you aware of the concept of the gray goo? I'm not, actually. There, it's they this concept that uh, in the future, people create nanobots that start just mm -hmm. replicating and replicating and turning all of reality into a gray goo. We might be headed there. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing yeah. is, like, maybe the gray goo is actually happening, but on a cultural, sociological level, not a material one. Yeah. Because uh, as we see now, AI is just uh, mishmashing everything it can find on this folklore and putting it together into a gray goo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that is actually a really good way to put it. I'm going to remember that. Yeah, because, you know, we get you get people who don't know the subject, but want to know it. So they're kind of curious about it. They want to learn about it. And, you know, people tend to really latch on to beliefs that they encounter initially. Um, and again, there's a whole, I should probably mention I have a degree in psychology before I keep going off on all these studies about psychology. Um, there's all these studies about how difficult it is to get people to change their minds once you've sort of come to a conclusion or established a belief. And I definitely think there's some, some gray goo territory that we can run into with people who are forming their beliefs initially from this sort of material, this kind of um, disconnected from actual human belief or, you know, folk practice. Mm -hmm. um, but then once you incorporate and believe it, then it is folklore and it, it kind of becomes self-sustaining. And then it self-perpetuates its own mythologization because we see that with anecdotal accounts, the uh, phenomenon reflects back what the pop sure. culture tells us. 
for sure. And, you know, I've, I've definitely seen anecdotal accounts, again, you know, take them with a grain of salt or not given the source and the context, but definitely seen anecdotal accounts where people talk about having experiences or seeing things that are 100% coming from fiction. I have a, an eidetic memory, so I'm, I'm pretty good at identifying sources. Uh, if it's something I've read and then I see someone repeating pieces of it, and I can usually pick out based on what they're saying and how they're describing it, um, mm-hmm. that this is something that is coming from a particular um, fiction author or a particular series of novels, um, which is not to say the person doesn't sincerely believe they had this experience and this, you know, was what happened and it was, you know, in this context or whatever. But you can sort of see that they're the framework they're coming up with that they have for this is coming from that source. Exactly. Yeah. I already told you before recording that I did a whole roundtable about comic book creators stumbling upon their creations. And then you said, oh, like Constantine. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the one that everybody knows. Yeah, it's such a good example, though. Yes. Um, but yeah, and, you know, I think it's the same thing with fairies in a way that it does kind of raise these wider philosophical questions of are, are we actually experiencing what we think we're experiencing or is whatever it is that we're interacting with, you know, call it fairies, call it the collective unconscious, call it whatever you want, is whatever that is in that particular situation giving us what we expect using that imagery like a language that we're familiar with in order to have some kind of engagement or communication. And that can get very deep and philosophical if we go in that direction. But mm-hmm. Oh man, I, I'm, I'm pondering now just how everything we do have on fairies is kind of, in a way, fictionalized, is kind of uh, a bastardization of what was, you know, the original belief that we do not have and will probably never have. So fairies in themselves are this kind of a blend of fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. And it's, you know, because these are beliefs that are constantly evolving, it's not like we can kind of pinpoint like a true or genuine concept because things just are continuously changing. You know, the winged fairies are one example. Now we have people that do have those experiences when, you know, historically that was not true. Doesn't mean that what's happening now isn't true and genuine, but it means that it's a sign of the way that popular culture has influenced things and moved things in a different direction. There's a particular type of so-called, I'm doing air quotes, Irish fairy called the Banti, which uh, is, it just means housekeeper or woman of the house, but you'll find it all over online listed as the the Irish equivalent of a house spirit or like a the Irish equivalent of a Scottish brownie. And it didn't exist 25 years ago. It was kind of co-created by a couple different authors working off of each other's material over the space of like five or six years and then um, put online in the early 21st century and it's just kind of exploded from there. But now it's a genuine belief. People really do believe this exists. They, I've seen people talking about, you know, believing that they have this spirit in their house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not that that isn't a genuine thing so much as a, you know, the context that we know it was created in can be kind of pinpointed. And then is it the it's actually a brand new spirit that you know humans have invented which is not personally what i believe is possible but or is it something that was already there that's kind of adopted this name in this context in order to interact with people okay this goes into let's say in cryptozoology we oftentimes see appropriators uh, taking away you know these traditional monsters entities from you know indigenous Mm -hmm. cultures then creating their own versions of them let's say the sasquatch the bigfoot and now these indigenous cultures then incorporating the bastardized version into their own belief system. Yeah, for sure. 
is this something that happens, let's say, with fairy lore? Like, do we today have people descended from, you know, the Celts and still practicing Celtic belief? Yep. I mean, we definitely still have the Celtic language speaking cultures, uh, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Cornwall, the Isle of Man, Brittany in northern France. Those are cultures, you know, along with the language that have preserved a lot of the beliefs of the older culture. Okay. So, so in those cultures, do you see them incorporating the modern bastardized version, I, if I need to put it like that, into their own belief system? For sure. Um, the, the Banti is a, a good example of that because um, I know that is something that has now spread to Ireland, ironically, because it's allegedly an Irish being that was actually created outside of Ireland, but is now kind of been imported in and is becoming genuine belief. The Scottish fairy courts, the Seelie and the Unseelie, which was originally a very localized kind of belief, has now become this sort of universal concept that you'll find in pretty much any fiction. And I was in Ireland in 2016 at a heritage center, which was, they had an area with like a Iron Age house and reenactors. And one of the reenactors is telling a story, which is a very old Irish myth. But when he's telling the story, instead of saying, you know, there's this fairy man who, uh, he ends up turning this woman into a deer, is what happens in the story. But he specifically said this this man was a fairy of the unseelie court, which is not at all an Irish concept and not something you generally find in Irish belief or folklore, but it's clearly something that's kind of incorporated in in that case um, and then presented as genuine. This was presented as like, this is a very old story. Yeah, but like if you hear an entity telling you that and you know that's not historically really accurate, either the entity is lying to you or either the entity is reflecting what you believe it is. Right. Well, Uh, that... that (laughs) is the rub because it's difficult i think for you know human beings in a general context to know which of those things is what's happening <laughs> you know <laughs> are we being manipulated you know or or misled or is it again is it using a term or a language or a concept that we're familiar with in order to to connect to us and communicate or are we just projecting onto it um, again, it's that eyewitness testimony not being 100% reliable. Mm-hmm. Are we remembering the experience in a way that gives us that interpretation, even though maybe that's not what actually happened necessarily? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I often go from the standpoint that it is not even relevant what actually happened, but rather these anecdotal accounts we can yeah. use as uh, reflections of, let's say, the person's uh, psychological, social, historical contexts. It is a reflection of the folklore or even a reflection of pop culture as we talked about yeah 100 percent. i i always go into anecdotal accounts without any judgment if i can manage it um Mm -hmm. you know it's this is what the person is saying this is their belief about what happened it's their eyewitness eyewitness testimony if you will and it's not for me to try to dissect that or decide which parts are true and which parts aren't um i just sort of take it like okay this is the anecdotal account this is their version of what happened and there's a lot of value i think that way. Not necessarily just their own version, but also I see it as kind of a cultural Freudian slip. If somebody yeah. really believes what they're seeing, uh, what they see is also a reflection of, let's say, if there is a, some kind of collective unconsciousness or th- their whole culture. Or even with uh, fiction writers, we often see them incorporate these tropes and archetypes that reflect on the society in the contemporary time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of times, uh, even with the, the fairy material and, and those sort of anecdotal accounts, you know, we're, we're getting to some degree 
at least the language that is used to tell the story is coming from that person's background and, you know, their familiarity with the subject or, you know, stories that they grew up on, you know, that all sort of provides their context for them. And I, I think that that is something that also feeds back into itself, you know, because then that anecdotal account gets shared around and told other people and becomes folklore. Mm -hmm. A self-perpetuating mythology. <laughs> Yep, yep. And then that's going to influence other people who are, have heard it or are familiar with it. And it's it definitely makes things really interesting, for sure. Wow. So knowing all of this, who knows what will happen in the future if we have more and more uh, AI written books and how that will shape our own perception of reality. Yeah, it's I don't think people realize how profoundly our perception of reality is influenced by stories. Um, you know, whether that's anecdotal account stories, uh, you know, nonfiction stories, I guess we could say, or, or fiction, um, straight up fiction, um, you know, sort of all of that information gets taken in. And that's what helps us form our lens, the way that we look at the world. And that's that's a very powerful thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's a little unnerving to think that AI has got a part in that now for me anyway. Yeah, I see it uh, like the AI is pulling from the collective unconsciousness that we have been uploading for decades onto the clouds. Yeah, mm. but it's kind of like the artwork where the, the figures have like six or seven fingers or a yeah. hundred teeth. Like, just not sure where this is ultimately going to take us. <laughs> and ironically enough, for my podcast, for most of the episodes, I make the episode art with AI. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it's it's definitely a tool that has its uses. Um, I just think we need to figure out where the the ethical aspects come in with it. Yes, exactly. And now you have to use an image for this that has someone with like six or seven fingers. <laughs> <laughs> For our last episode, I was uh, was like spending an hour trying to make a, an AI image, and most of them were like I put in fairy, and every fairy had wings. Yep. <laughs> and I knew you'd hate that. <laughs> So for, for the episode, I put some kind of a fairy's head from the side, kissing two hearts uh, into the ether. Yeah, I like that. That's cool. Yeah. That widespread fairies have wings belief. Yes. Even the AI has been affected. Yes. Okay, well, thank you for doing this, uh, though this was a very quirky episode, but I think it was something that needed to be discussed and uh, my listeners may gain a lot from this discussion. I hope so. Thank you for having me back on. I, I really enjoyed it. No problem. So can you, for my listeners, just tell them where they can find you and plug any upcoming books you have. Sure. Um, in late May, I have an actually, have, speaking of fiction, I have a novel coming out. Um, it's called Into Shadow. Uh, it's high fantasy. So there's a dragon and all kinds of sordid shenanigans. And then in July, I have a book on Freya coming out. So those are my two upcoming ones where you can find me social media. Sadly, I am spending way too much time on that. But Facebook, Twitter, pretty much most of the major platforms. Um, I'm even on Mastodon now, although I don't spend as much time on there. Um, I do have a Patreon. I put a lot of free content up on my Patreon, not just paid content. So uh, if you're interested in, in seeing sort of what I put out there for my writing, uh, that's an option. Yes. I will link everything in the episode description. And thank you again for uh, sitting down with me talking, even though <laughs> I told you even before recording, like I am nervous talking with you because I'm such a noob in all of this. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think this was a great conversation. I really hope it gets people thinking about the information we take in and the way that affects what we believe. Exactly, exactly. I think that's very uh, important. And be, like, be it fairy, be it cryptids, aliens, ghosts, uh, just how our perception of all this phenomena influences it, but also how the phenomena sends us down these rabbit holes to dig into the history. And even when we dig into the history, we can't really be certain if it's correct or not. Like with ghosts, with haunted places, we sometimes have uh, people seeing, you know, the ghost of some kind of historical individual. And then when somebody actually does the research, they find out this individual never existed. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. Or that the, the location, actually nothing has happened. I've seen that a couple of times where people are like, oh, this place is very haunted, you know, and then you research and it's like, there's really nothing significant that's ever happened in that place that we, anybody knows of. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, it's us bringing the haunting to the place. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I definitely think there's a lot of symbiotic relationship that goes on with with humans and phenomena. Yes. And that would tie with the fairy, this whole idea of the fairy being, let's say a, a shadow of ourselves. You can't get away from your shadow and the shadow is influenced by the shape of your body, the outline of you. Yep. So yep. whatever your, your outline is, uh, the shadow will reflect that. So will the phenomena, so will the fairy. Yep. For sure. Okay, well, until next time, thank you. <laughs> and I'll be li- listing everything in the episode description. Listeners, go get some bo- book from Morgan because she is definitely not an AI, though I don't know if you're human or not. I asked you if people asked if you're a fairy. I do get asked a lot about that one. So maybe I'll plead the fifth on whether I'm actually human, but I'm definitely not an AI. So. Definitely not an AI. So grab one of, of her 60 books and <laughs> until next time. Bye-bye. Bye.